0: Mark, I want to first of all thank you for entrusting to me the pulpit that has been entrusted to you. I am both honored and I am sobered knowing the ministry of the word that has taken place from this pulpit over so many years. And I'm delighted to be with each of you, fellow travelers in this work of the gospel, fellow recipients of the work of grace, And I'm sobered and delighted by the fact that out of these pews for many years, over those many years, generations of individuals and families from Park Street Church were discipled here. And then they went out to offer unnumbered acts of service and surrender in their daily lives, offering countless prayers in the closet where no one but God sees and offering great generosity where not even their right hand knew what their left hand was up to lives marked by trust and i've come to believe that trust is the highest form of worship because in trust we declare oh god i believe that you are i believe that you're merciful i give myself holy to you i abandon my future into your hands it is trust that they offered over those years and then out of that trust they offered their obedience to do things that the world didn't necessarily understand And as you've heard nearly 80 years ago their trust and their obedience set in motion a powerful wave of compassion listening to the call of the holy spirit the war relief was formed and it became in time world relief i want you to consider that in that time since that nearly 100 million people across 100 countries have encountered the fullness of the gospel in word and indeed through the agency of the local church let me say that again 100 million people in 100 countries have encountered the fullness of christ in word and deed through the agency of the church something that you set in motion and park street church has inspired and compelled me and the thousands of staff and volunteers across the world over the years who could have known that when you tossed your pebble of obedience into the waters of that day that so many ripples would form and change lives across the world in this generation and for generations to come now your challenge and mine is to live out of that history in a way that future generations of christ followers will view us with the kind of regard that we now hold those upon whose shoulders we stand so while we celebrate this history we acknowledge our work isn't done and we have to ask what stories will be told 200 years from now and what role am i being called to play in those stories And I'm convinced that the power of those future stories to be written will be directly linked to our ability to understand and join the great story that God has and is writing. And my hope today is to remind you of that great story, specifically that you and I have been called by God into serious times. And we are therefore called to be serious people. And we must therefore offer a serious response. And to begin that journey, I want to take us right back to where we were a moment ago in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created, but before the creation, it says the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over all of that. Picture that in your mind, the Spirit of God over the darkness and the emptiness and the chaos and the formlessness, and God acted. His performative word said let there be light and there was light and meaning and order in this that we what we see is that when God encounters darkness and emptiness God acts because it is who he is this is what he does and this creation that God created was spectacularly varied and rich and beautiful and entrusted by God to women and men, the pinnacle of his love and his creation. But we know how the story unfolded from there. From a first act of rebellion in the garden, the world soon began to become, become engulfed in violence, oppression, hatred and greed. Man was separated from God, from one another, from their very creation itself. And you and I have been born into that world. Not only have we inherited this brokenness, but you and I have contributed to this brokenness, born out of our own fallenness. For you and I carry the DNA of rebellion. And while we don't want to miss the good that is going on in the world, and we give thanks for that, can we not all sense that the trajectory is shifted back towards the darkness? Can we feel that darkness and emptiness are pressing back in upon us, do we see it on every front can we feel the weight of it and without any sense of trying to be exhaustive or place these things in an order i just want to remind you this morning of the things that we together share in this serious time that god has called us to live in you've heard about the refugees from ukraine the displaced people nearly 12 million If we add those to the others in the world, there are over 90 million people who are displaced, and that number is too large to comprehend. So I'm going to ask you to do a little mental journey. Think about your way home today, and imagine that every home you pass is dark and empty, and every condominium building and every apartment building Utterly empty, and not just from your home to, or from here to your home, but all of greater Boston, and then the entire state of Massachusetts. But we're just getting started. You would have to add all of New York City and the state of New York, and you'd have to add all the state of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Connecticut every home dark, but that wouldn't be enough. You'd have to add Maryland and Virginia and Ohio. Imagine every city, every state, dark and empty, the homes with no one in them. That is the scale of this displacement. And we have to think about it in terms of it being real people. Children like our children, fleeing for their lives, torn apart by this war. Parents and grandparents like ours. People that are like us, people that have the same dreams and cares and longings that we do, fleeing their homes with only what they can take and carry with them, not knowing if they'll ever return home, or if they do, who might still be in the family to return home with. And they're fleeing not knowing where their next meal is coming from, where their next glass of water is coming from. If they're a woman, they have no idea how safe they might be on the way to wherever. And for so many of the refugees of the world, they are fleeing knowing that no country in the world wants them. This is a serious time. But added to that is the weight of a global pandemic, with millions dead, economies disrupted, supply chains in tatters. And those of us with the blessings of resources, we fare better on the whole. And one of the things we've learned that I work at World Relief is that the vulnerable and the marginalized and the poor they suffer first they suffer most and they suffer longest. World Relief just published a report on the impact of COVID and buttressed by research from the World Bank and we learned that from 1990 until 2015 the rate of extreme global poverty had dropped from 36% to just 15%. But in the last few years under COVID, over 100 million people have been thrust back into extreme poverty, and years of progress made have now been lost. Consider Afghanistan. Due to a combination of COVID and economic collapse, the Taliban rule, and drought, the suffering is beyond measure. The UN World Food Program estimates that 23 million people in Afghanistan are food insecure. And the estimates are that up to 1 million children will have already starved to death in this past winter. In addition to that, 90% of the health clinics have been closed. And women and girls are again denied their rights, marginalized, and too often abused. And we could go on. Nuclear threats from Russia and North Korea that once again make the unthinkable a possibility in our day. And mass shootings like Buffalo just yesterday. Racial tension, senseless violence, such as when a man drove his van at high speed into a Christmas parade in my hometown, killing people senselessly. It happened on the street right in front of my favorite coffee shop, and I went there to pay my respects and to grieve for the families and to pray for the recovery, and I could see the outlines where dancing grandmothers and little children's bodies lay because of this wanton violence, and I could feel the darkness pressing in. I want to mention a further threat. And that is that the public discourse and the institutions that we have relied upon to help us seek answers, to address these threats, are themselves under threat because of an erosion of reason and belief in truth. We live in a time of deconstruction of nearly every idea and institution that formed the basis of our democracy, of Western civilization, and beyond. Now, questioning the past is a necessary part of our growth, but the unfettered wholesale rejection of the building blocks of our faith and of our culture have caused too many to become anti-faith, anti-science, and anti-institution. We are in a day where many, with Pontius Pilate, would say, what is truth? Because everyone is declaring their own truth. But as a people of God, we know this, that while God allows us to decide what we believe, he does not allow us to decide what is true. He has declared that. It is immutable, it is unchangeable, and our human errors are exposed in the light of God's unending truth. But the world has deconstructed these things and is lost because of it. Writing on these things, Jonathan Haidt recently remarked, we are a disoriented people, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We're caught off from one another and from the past, becoming like two different countries claiming the same territory with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. This is a story about the fragmentation of everything the shattering of all that it seems solid and the scattering of people who had been a community and it is a metaphor of what is happening with the rift not just between left and right red and blue but within the left and within the right within the universities and within companies and professional associations and even families and you and I know that he could have easily as well have mentioned, and it's happening in the church because we know the church lives in a fractured culture and it is a risk to the church to become a fractured culture itself. And when that happens, this gospel we've been called to, the only hope for the flourishing of human beings in this life and in the next, that witness is deeply eroded when we cannot live in the agreement and the unity that Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer in John 17. Our times are deeply serious because of the rebellion of the garden lives and thrives in us. God has called us to serious times, but... We know from history that in serious times, God also raises up serious people. But serious people are small in number. It's natural, isn't it, that people would freeze, becoming paralyzed by the complexity of the world, overwhelmed by the pain of the world, and we get tempted to retreat. I get tempted to retreat. I would guess that you do as well on occasion, retreating to simple answers and self-protecting actions or we may just say it's too much i'm going to escape to my pleasures and my entertainments and anything that distracts me from this world it's just too complex and it's just too hard but as followers of jesus we are called to run towards the darkness and the chaos when most of the world understandably wants to run away god raises up Serious people. And we know this from an account in the scripture in 1 Chronicles 12. It's the account we often know as the account of the men of Issachar. It was a time when Israel was under great stress, unrelenting war with, with other nations and tribes, and even a civil war among themselves. We know that in, the, in one case, King David, who had been anointed to be king, was fleeing for his life, running to the deserts, hiding in caves running from the armies of Saul. But God gathered people to David to support him. And this account is of the people from the various tribes that God called to support David. And it says 50,000 soldiers prepared for battle from the tribe of Zebulon and 40,000 from Asher. And from Reuben and Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, 120,000 soldiers. All in all, 340,000 people were gathered to join David. But then it says this from Issachar: 200 chiefs with all their families. Issachar, such a tiny fraction of 340,000, it hardly seems worth a mention. But the distinction is that while in every other tribe what was mentioned was how many fighting men they had with weapons, this is what it said of the people of Issachar: they were men who understood the times. And who knew what Israel should do they were serious people they knew the times they saw the snarling mess of the world and yet they had clarity and discernment they had the wisdom to see and declare reality as God sees it and they knew what Israel should do they saw beneath the crisis to the root issues they weren't reactionary they weren't caught in the fleeting moments in every little bit of news Their counsel was principled and wise. It was sturdy, and it had depth because it was aligned to the wisdom of God. Friends, serious people may be small in number, but so often the battle turns on those few serious people, and God has called you to be among that number. So what do serious people look like in our day? I'll offer you a few of my own observations as I ask that question of myself. Serious people understand that they can never push back the darkness on their own. They know that God confronts the darkness and the emptiness of our day in Jesus Christ. Think of the words of the prophet Isaiah prophesying centuries before the birth of Jesus. He said this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And so during his ministry on earth, Jesus, hearkening back to the creation account, when the Holy Spirit had hovered over the darkness and the chaos, Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. But then stunningly, he turned to his disciples and threw them to you and to me, and he said, and you are the light of the world. We as serious people called by God are agents of God's redemptive power, pushing back the darkness and bringing order into the emptiness and the chaos of our world. And serious people realize that the means by which Jesus did this conquering, brought this light, started, inaugurated this new kingdom, was not by the power of men. It was by self emptying making himself a servant of all, even to the point of death on a cross. And serious people today, you and I have to recognize, we must resist the temptation to seek the very things that Jesus assiduously rejected. Earthly power, earthly fame, earthly money, and resources, the affirmation of men. Because serious people understand that our ability to bring light and order is not rooted in simply human wisdom and in human will as much as we should bring the best that we have. It's incomplete without the working of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And serious people have to know who the real enemy is. I want to remind you the story of King David. He was just a young shepherd boy, and you might recall that Israel, Saul and Israel were aligned for battle with Goliath and the Philistines, and David, as a young shepherd boy, wasn't there in the battle. His father Jesse called him up and said, "Take these supplies to your brothers who are on the front lines." And as he got there, his oldest brother Eliab took issue with him. He verbally attacked him, and he said this: "He said." Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, at that moment, David had a choice. He was being attacked by his big brother. He was being shamed and being accused of being irresponsible and and he did engage a bit but then what david did is he shifted the focus he recognized that while it was natural to fight with his brother to engage with his brother was to take his eyes off the real enemy goliath and the philistines and the spiritual powers behind them serious people know the temptation to see their brother as the true enemy, and they, get dis, uh, they refuse to get engaged in that distraction. They keep their eyes on the real battle, and then they make peace, as much as it lies with them, to the brothers who will join them in the battle. And serious people are women and men who are like Jesus, marked by sorrow, and acquainted with grief when we interact with this world we will know the sorrow we will know the grief but they will also be marked by what was true of Jesus where it says he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows holding in tension the grief of a sin-sick world and the joy of a glorious father and living in that place serious people hold those two together and they recognize that they cannot fall under the burden of a universal sense of responsibility And we do that too easily. Matthew 25, Jesus says, whatsoever you do to the least of these that you've done for me. It's actually not what he said. He said, what you do for one of the least of these that you've done unto me. And so we are not the saviors of the world. Serious people know we need to be full into this mission, but we also know that in the end, it belongs to him and we live with gladness and with grief and were propelled by the spirit of jesus within us and serious people let their compassion mature into justice like the good samaritan they rescue and they bind up the wounds and they comfort the beaten and the left for dead along the highway but then they step back as martin luther once said and they have to ask Why is this highway so dangerous? And what must change so that we don't keep having people beaten on this highway? How do serious people look to and create just systems that address the root of the darkness and the chaos and the emptiness of the world? And I think serious people do something else. They reject the false notion, even the current idolatry, that we are entitled to complete safety. They recognize that while the whole world says to us, our friends say it to us, our parents say it to us, our kids say to us, be safe, be safe, be safe, when the gospel we're called to doesn't say be safe, it says fear not. And with that, serious people exchange personal security for kingdom risk. And they trade personal comfort to secure safety. For others, they don't run from trial. In fact, serious people expect one day to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. God has called you to be serious people. But in that, we also get to offer a serious response. And this is a beautiful thing about world relief i fell in world, in love with world relief about 20 years ago because it answered for me a question that i didn't see getting answered well how do we hold this beautiful holistic gospel of word and deed tethered together with biblical integrity if i talked to my more progressive friends and said what's at the heart of the gospel they would point me to luke chapter 4 when jesus at the inauguration of his ministry opened up the school of isaiah and he read these profound words The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Powerful, beautiful words of Jesus addressing those very needs. But if I asked that same question of my friends that were more of a conservative tradition, as I was and am, they they would point to Matthew 28 and say, "Oh, this gospel is all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit." And it seemed to me at that time that these two truths about Jesus were being pitted against each other. How could that be that at the inauguration of Jesus's ministry and then the conclusion of his earthly ministry that we couldn't see that both were true and he was living out the power of both of them every day of his ministry such as in matthew 9 where it says and jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction he was teaching he was proclaiming and he was healing and he was delivering those oppressed by everything that was militating against the grace of the original creation intent. And there was a serious response that came out of Park Street at the end of World War II. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of Eastern Europe. And Western Europe, the brokenness, the darkness, the chaos, the formlessness. And God's Spirit does what it does. He said, Let there be light. And part of that light was the light of Park Street saying yes to form world relief. And in that, you began a work. And it began serving refugees. And it continues serving serving refugees. It's been at the heart of world relief from the beginning. The refugee crisis of Ukraine and Afghanistan has broken the hearts of the world, but it was at the heart of of world relief from the beginning, even when it was unpopular, even when we lost donors because we were resettling people from countries that were not Christian. It was unpopular, but we needed to do it. Why? Because it's a biblical call. For the same reason that Park Street, you have embraced seven families from Afghanistan, you have worked extraordinarily hard. Your, your hearts have been broken. You've laid your life on the line to form the teams that's, that serve those Afghan families. This is the core of who we are. I know my story of how I came to fall so deeply in love with this ministry. It was when, almost 20 years ago, I was in the office resettlement office in Chicago. And I came across a young man who was a refugee from the country of Myanmar. And he was volunteering. And I asked him, what led you to want to volunteer? And in his broken English, as he was learning the language, he told me the story that he had been a refugee in his land for 17 years, brought there as a boy. Now, you need to understand the average time, the average stay of a refugee in a refugee camp is 17 years it's not 17 weeks or 17 months it's 17 years and he said i was raised there and i grew to be a young man i met my wife we were married we had a son in this camp and one day i was stunned to find out that i had been accepted to be resettled in the united states and the truth is we were frightened to stay but we were also frightened to go because we didn't know what to expect And he said, a friend of mine in the camp pulled out of his trousers a crumpled-up U.S. $20 bill and gave it to me. And we treasured it. We didn't know how long it would last us. And as we made our way to the U.S. through multiple airports and various flights, the only thing we ate was airplane food because we did not want to spend that money. He said, but when I arrived at O'Hare Airport and the doors opened with our luggage, whatever we had... He said there was a person standing there several people and they had a sign with my name on it and then they took me out to the parking lot where there was a van full of people who were there including someone from my country who knew my language and they drove us to the apartment that they had secured for us filled with food that they had brought in and filled the cupboards with and they told us that there was someone out right then looking for a job so I could support my family And they went on to explain that there were english classes available to us and this is all being done through the local church which if we wanted we'd be welcome to come to and he said you have no idea what it meant for me to have been so excluded so traumatized and so vulnerable and then to suddenly feel so welcomed and so safe and so secure so why am i volunteering here because the next person that comes in from my country I want to be the person holding the sign that's what serious people do that's how we are the light of the world and I fell in love with world relief yet again when I got to witness and hear the stories of how we were working among not just those traumatized populations but hard to reach people groups such as in Pakistan where one of our staff told me that we've recognized in this muslim country we have limited opportunities but we can serve and we can love in the name of jesus and we can do it among the most vulnerable people and they chose the families that had disabled children because disabled children were seen as curse they were shunted away they were hidden and the families were often scorned But World Relief gathered these families and began to teach week after week practical classes on how to live as a family with someone with a disability, how to um, find access to some measure of help, how to help serve each other. And after multiple weeks of training, we had a graduation in which we were able to bring in crutches and wheelchairs and walkers and distribute them to these families. And my friend said, I noticed a family that had two disabled children. And my heart just broke, so I went over and spent time with them. And we talked for quite some time. And then I recognized that the building had pretty well cleared. And as we were finishing our conversation, the woman in her full burqa looked at her husband as though she was asking a question. And he nodded yes. And she reached for her veil, and she opened her veil. And I was frightened because I knew I was not supposed to fear, see her face. And she, seeing my fear, she said, no, 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 it's okay. We can show our faces to family, and World Relief is now family. This is being the light of the world. It's an amazing gift that we have been given to set these stories in motion together. Park Street, I hope you know something of the depth of that heritage that you have. Because of you, we've also been able to empower churches around the world to push back against the darkness in Haiti and Rwanda and Malawi and the Democratic Republic of Congo and the South Sudan and in Cambodia and and, in so many other places where we learned that we couldn't just bring a single intervention to meet the needs of a community. For example, clean water, as important as it is, if you bring clean water, but you don't address nutrition, Or public safety where the women can go to a well and not be attacked if you don't address all the issues of brokenness with spiritual brokenness in the center of it that brokenness is just going to overwhelm that again and by the grace of God we have seen entire communities transformed with the gospel at the center and driven by the church and so when we go to these communities to start this work we tell them God did not give your community to world relief. He didn't give it to the West. He gave it to you. You in Bujumbu Burundi, God didn't give your community to world relief. We are not the bride of Christ. You are. But if you'll allow us, we will be the bridesmaid so that we can help you become beautiful for your groom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Park Street, this is your story. It's our story together. And I want to thank you on behalf of literally thousands of staff and hundreds of thousands of volunteers over the years who, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, have been doing this work of confronting darkness and emptiness. And the reality is the Spirit of God still hovers. He still declares light and order. Park Street, you are the light of the world. Thank you for allowing World Relief to be an extension of your compassion in the U.S. and around the world, reaching people you will never know in places you could never go. We do it together, and I, my prayer for you is very simple, that God would grant you continued courage and conviction and generosity of heart as together we write the stories that will be told 200 years from now.